All right. Well, good morning. My name is Doug, one of the pastors here at Parkview. It's a joy to be able to be with you. And um, this is the part of our service where we'll continue in worship through the proclamation of God's word. And so I would encourage you that if you have a, a Bible to take it out now and open it up to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is where we'll be hanging out this morning. Um, as you turn in there, so I grew up as a Cubs fan. Many of you know that. You're aware of that. Um, as a boy, would often listen to their games on the radio, would watch them Sunday afternoons on the TV every now and then, and never had a chance as a child to go to Wrigley Field, okay? So it wasn't until I was uh, maybe in my early 20s that I was able to get the first trip to go to watch a Cubs game live and in person. Um, and, you know, as you can imagine, if you've been there, it's really a, a special place, at least in baseball history. It's a special place. Um, kind of rolling up, I think it's Clark Avenue. You first see the marquee there. You know, you see pictures growing up over the years and you never have any experience. It's just, it's just really remarkable. And so just in awe, as we rolled up on the field, just looking at all the scenes, just really had to take it in, right? And as we walked into the friendly confines and I got the first glimpse onto the baseball field, um, if you've been in this situation before, kind of just takes your breath away. Just a really, really special, special place. Um, could say it's almost like sacred. It feels almost sacred, right? It's that special, okay? Get some head nodding over there. Great. Thank you, Mike, for that. But just really, really special territory. Um, what we're about to do right now as a church is we're going to spend the next couple of weeks reading and studying through the book of, or the chapter, 17th chapter of the book of John. Um, and this chapter specifically, now we know all of God's word is inspired, is breathed out by God. It is all sacred. These are the sacred scriptures, right? But there is something very unique, very special about this specific chapter. There's something sacred about this chapter, the 17th chapter of John. In fact, John Knox, the Scottish reformer, was asked by his wife, on his deathbed, where would you like me to read from the Bible? As he's dying, taking his last breath, she's asking him, where would you like me to read in the Bible? And John said this, where I first put my anchor down in the 17th chapter of John. It said that as she was reading this, he took his final breath. John Stott, the great theologian, has this to say about John 17. John 17, without a doubt, is one of the profoundest chapters in the Bible. There are depths here that we will never fathom. All we can do is paddle in the shallows. Here are heights that we cannot scale. We can only climb the foothills. Nevertheless, we must persevere. For if the upper room discourse is the temple of Scripture, John 17 is its inner sanctuary or the holy of holies. Here we're introduced into the presence, the mind, the very heart of God. And we're permitted to eavesdrop as the son communes with the father. We need to take off our shoes for this is holy ground. This is certainly a sacred, special chapter. There are some, in fact, that see it so sacred over the years that there are some individuals who refuse to preach John chapter 17. They think it's that special, that unique. Well, as you can tell, we would not place ourselves in that camp because we're about to preach through the whole chapter over the course of the next eight weeks or so. Um, but we do believe it's very special. It's very unique. And I actually believe it would be a huge mistake not to preach John 17. 
Jesus, for, you know, in fact, would not have prayed this audibly if he didn't want us to read it, to study it, to understand it, and as his people to be formed by these very words. We have a, a great deal to learn from this chapter. And as we study it over the course of the next couple of weeks, we will learn a great deal about the very heart of Jesus himself. And we will learn a great deal about our existence and purpose in this world as Jesus people, okay? So uh, because this is such a kind of launching off the, the series and because it's just such a special chapter, we're gonna do something a little unique here this morning. We're gonna actually all read it audibly out loud together. Okay, so this is, maybe, if you're new here, this is potentially maybe a little unusual um, for you, but I will say throughout the history, that what we're gonna do in the next couple of minutes is not unique or unusual. God's people have historically gathered together and read his word out loud together as his people. Okay, so we fit well within history, within our cultural moment. Maybe it's a little odd, but that's okay. This is God's word. It's holy, it's inspired, it's eternal, it's true. So I would invite you to stand if you're able, and we're gonna read the entire chapter of John 17. You can just kind of follow along with me. I think, Lindsay, are the words perfect. I don't know if there's a way to make that background go away. Yeah, there it is, great. Okay, be a little easier. So this is God's word, John chapter 17, verse one. Let's read this together. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now father glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you give me is from you, and I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you and have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Father God, we come together as your people this morning and we um, recognize that your spirit is in this place. Um, and as we gather around your word, I pray that your spirit would reveal to us your truth, would draw us to yourself Lord, and help us to grow in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word that is eternal and that it's true. And we ask simply this morning that you use this word and that you write it on our hearts. We love you and we ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, I am, some of you may know, I'm the youngest of five. I have two older brothers, two older sisters. And growing up, um, as I thought about who did I want to be like, as a little boy, um, sorry, I'm feeling a little cramped up here. Uh, I always wanted to be like my older brothers. Two older brothers just wanted to be like them. They, to me, they were just the coolest things, coolest people in the world. Um, and as I thought about what it looked like to be like them, I would oftentimes find myself doing the things that they would do. I have one brother who really liked to fish, and so I really wanted to get into fishing. Another brother's big into basketball, so I really wanted to get into basketball. Uh, video games, I would find myself playing the video games my brothers would play. The friends that they had were the friends that I wanted to have, right? As I thought about what would, it, what would it look like for me to be like them, you know, look a particular way. My one brother had a, a waterbed, which they used to make, apparently, okay? And I remember thinking to myself, hey, when I get older, I'm gonna have a, gosh darn it, I'm gonna have a waterbed too, okay? Thank God that that didn't happen, all right? But I wanted to be like them, so I would try to look like them. We've been talking about the last couple of weeks at church, um, and really over the years, as followers of Jesus, God has called us to, to be people who look like Christ, and so as we put our hope and trust in Jesus, God gives us his spirit and he forms within us a people that actually look like Jesus. That's what we long for. So kind of regardless of where you are here this morning and your relationship with Jesus, what we've been saying is that each one of us has the same goal to grow closer to Jesus. For some of us, the next step might look a little different for others, but we all have the same objective to become like Jesus. What we'll see this morning as we turn our attention now to John chapter 17, 
is that to be like Jesus, we must pray. We must pray. It's the big idea, this message this morning. To be like Jesus, we must pray. We must pray. We are disciples, followers of Jesus, and we've said that we learn Christ, that we love Christ, and that we live Christ. And as we consider our own discipleship process, our own journey with Jesus, for us to grow, to look more and more like Jesus, we need to pray. Also, as we consider the great work of making other disciples, prayer is at the very center of how we make disciples. So to become like Jesus, we must pray. To help us in this endeavor to become a praying people like our praying Lord and Savior Jesus, this morning we're just going to look at sort of two different things here, um, specifically in the first verse of chapter 17. We're going to consider together the purpose of this prayer, and then we will also look at how this is also a picture for us of prayer. What does prayer look like? What does it look like to be a praying person? So first, let's turn our attention to the purpose of Jesus's prayer. Again, just look at verse one. If you have your Bible open, you'll be helped. We'll be kind of moving throughout the chapter a little bit, but kind of home base this morning will be the first half of verse one. And this is what it says. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. Just consider those words this morning. The purpose of Jesus's prayer. When Jesus had spoken, the the verse starts off, the chapter starts off by saying, when Jesus had spoken these words. Let's consider together the context. This chapter is in sort of put together in a a bigger section of scripture in the Gospel of John, which is known and commonly referred to as the upper room discourse. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, these are the final moments of Jesus's life on earth as a human and he is with his closest friends. That he knows what lies ahead really just in a matter of hours, that Jesus is going to be brutalized, he's gonna be betrayed, brutalized, and he's gonna be hung up on a cross. He knows that's coming. And in these chapters of the book of John, Jesus is preparing his people for what lies ahead, for what's about to happen. If you're familiar with this section, perhaps you remember in John 13 that before he launches into a sermon that Jesus, they're in the upper room and Jesus does this this shocking display of humility as he assumes the role of a servant and washes the the creator of the universe, washing the feet of his disciples. And then he tells them, and the same way that I've served you, you are now to serve one another. And the idea here is is that, that as you love one another, you put on display for the world to see a, a love that is utterly unique and unexplainable apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's how the the discourse starts, this amazing act of service, a demonstration, really, of what love is. And then after after he washes their feet in 14 through 16, Jesus launches into, essentially, he preaches a sermon. He preaches a sermon. And as he preaches a sermon, the subject of this discourse, of this sermon, Jesus explains with great care that his death and departure, he he describes what specifically his death and his departure from this world will mean for the disciples. You can kind of look back and and summarize that sermon in sort of two different parts. The the first part, as you can imagine, these disciples are, are men that have given their life to following Jesus. They love Jesus. They have expectations for what Jesus is gonna accomplish through them 
in the world. And, and Jesus is challenging those expectations, right? And you can imagine that this is hard news for these disciples to hear. They're losing their leader. The one who they thought was going to usher in God's kingdom, build an empire here on earth. They're losing him. They have tons of questions. And for the first half, the first part, Jesus is dealing with their concerns. He's answering their questions. He's preparing them also for the difficult things that lie ahead. Persecution, it's coming. What does it look like to follow me? It might look different than you thought, disciple. Following me is going to look like persecution. It's going to look like rejection. It's going to look like denial. So he's got some hard things to say to them. But... He also has some glorious things to say to them. In the second part, Jesus speaks to the necessity of God's people in the midst of great challenge, in the midst of significant trouble. Jesus speaks to them about the necessity of persevering as God's people. Tells them that as he leaves, he will send them another, a comforter, a helper who will be with them who will comfort them. He offers for them words in a world of uncertainty and trouble. Jesus offers for his followers, for his people, words of comfort and of peace. He, he did for them then and he does for us this morning. As Stephanie was mentioning earlier, we live in uncertain times. And really, if we're honest, no more uncertain now than they ever been. It's just that we're faced with the reality of our uncertainty, Right? The troubles of the world are before us and we can't deny them. We can't dismiss them. This world oftentimes is just no fun. It's hard. Jesus offers them great comfort in this sermon. At the end of the sermon, actually at the beginning of the sermon and at the end and beginning of chapter 14, he, he starts off by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. And then he preaches. And at the end of the sermon, the last things that he says is for his disciples to take heart. So he, he kind of ends the way that he begins. And he preaches this message to prepare them for the world that they're about to navigate. Well, in verse 1, it says, after he has said these things, we're told that he lifts up his eyes heaven. There is some debate as to whether they're still in the upper room or they've made their way out. I tend to think that probably the fact that he's looking up into heaven means that there's not a, maybe a mud floor above his head. I don't know for sure, but odds are they're on their way out. Jesus stops and looks up into heaven and begins to pray. He takes the exact same themes that he had been discussing and preparing and teaching them and exhorting them to, and now he weaves them through his prayer. You will see the exact same themes from his sermon present in his prayer. But now he's, he's preparing them, not by preaching, he's preparing them through prayer. Now, stop for a minute. What is prayer? If you're here, and I, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus or not, probably have different ideas of maybe specifically what prayer is. My guess is most of us would land on a common understanding of prayer, simply talking to God. And that's a fine understanding. That's simply what it is, just speaking to God. It's absolutely what it is. Here at Faith Academy, we have a, a, a catechism is one of the main ways that we teach God's word. And we have chapel every morning. And we simply ask a question one week and then we provide an answer for that question. It's a way of teaching biblical truth to the young people who go to school here. 
And one of the things that we teach them is specifically is what is prayer? That's a question that one week we ask. What is prayer? And the answer that we teach them to respond to that question is this. What is prayer? Prayer is pouring out our hearts to God. What is prayer? Prayer is pouring out our hearts to God. At its fundamental core, that's exactly what prayer is. I don't know if you've thought of it that way before, but it's so helpful. And it should humble us. (laughs) Because here's the deal. There's nobody in this room but you who knows what's in your heart. There's nobody. You know what's in your heart. You're the only one in this room that knows your heart. Now, you might have people close to you that know certain aspects of your heart, but the only one who really knows my heart is me. And if we allow ourselves the grace of taking a moment and just peering into our own hearts, we don't get very far before we start to see stuff that's not so fun to see, right? Sin, jealousy, hatred, lust, maybe a history that we're ashamed of. As we look into our hearts, folks, you and I both know it's not all roses. But here's the deal. God knows your heart too, right? He knows exactly what's in your heart. The good stuff, the bad stuff, the ugly stuff. He knows what's in your heart. And do you know what he wants you to do? Knowing full well what's in your heart, God, the creator of the universe, the good loving father, he wants us to open up our hearts to him and pour them out to him. Knowing full well what's in there. Guys, that's amazing. That's how good this God is. He knows what's in our heart and he wants us to pour it out to him in prayer. And that's exactly what Jesus does in John 17. Jesus allows his disciples and us for that matter to listen to him, the son, as he goes before the father and opens up his heart and pours it out. It's what Jesus is doing in John 17, pouring out his heart to God the Father. As we read through this chapter, you'll see that it breaks down about three different sections. Verses one through five, Jesus is pouring out his heart to God specifically for himself. He's asking, approaching God the Father, and he's, the, the thing he's asking for specifically is for himself. Then if you get into verses 6 through 19, you see that his, he's still doing the exact same thing, pouring out his heart, but now the, he's pouring it out to the Father, and he's asking for stuff specifically for his disciples, the immediate men who are around him, who are following him. He's asking for them. And then at the end of the chapter, verses 20 to 26, Jesus again shifts focus. And now he's praying for, and catch this, he's praying for you and me. The last half of the chapter, Jesus' focus shifts beyond that of his immediate disciples. And it extends to every subsequent generation of Jesus' followers that would come after them. The whole global church for generations, for you and for me, Jesus is praying for us in John 17. This is amazing. If you want to know what Jesus thinks about you, if you want to know what Jesus wants for you, do nothing more than read John 17, and you will know precisely what Jesus wants for you. 
Now, being prayed for is an awesome thing. I don't know if you guys have, have been prayed for before um, by somebody in close proximity, verbally, out loud, and heard somebody pray for you. There's something about it that, that makes you feel loved, cared for. There's something about it that there's a, there's a degree of vulnerability there that helps you feel known by the person who's praying for you. It's a powerful experience. Well, the same is true when we consider Jesus praying for us. We ought to feel known by him and loved by him. The same effect. Jesus, in fact, here's the deal. This is why this is so important because the Bible tells us that do you know what Jesus is doing right now? He's praying for you and for me. The Bible calls him the intercessor. He's interceding. Hebrews, 11, sorry, Hebrews 7, 25 says that he always lives. He's living right now to make intercession for us, between us and the Father. He's interceding for us. That idea of intercessor is kind of a unique one. Um, again, growing up, youngest of five, and parents, very godly Christians, love them to death, great parents. But everybody knew they were sort of a favorite, Right? I mean, everybody, I don't know, it's kind of a favorite. Not really a favorite, but it was a running joke in our family that there was, there was one brother that was super special. I wasn't him. You may have picked up on that, okay? A little bit of a chip on my shoulder here. Okay, it wasn't him. But everybody knew that, hey, if we wanted something, brothers and sisters, in our home, like just, you know, convince Ben to go in there and he'll make it happen, right? They can't say no to Ben. I mean, he's such a good kid, right? They love him, right? You want the air conditioner turned on? Ben, come on, get in there, Right? Sort of a favorite. Ben was, in some degree, again, it was a running joke, not totally true, but who knows. Uh, in some level, he was sort of interceding for us to our parents, to our father, right? He represented our wants and our desires. He represented our agenda, he, our needs. Get this thing cold in here, please. It's hot, right? And he would take those needs before our parents, and he would represent us. He would ask for us. Similarly, that's what Jesus does as the great intercessor. He intercedes on our behalf. He's praying continually for you and for me right now. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing for us. That's why this chapter is called the high priestly prayer. Some of your Bibles will have that written above John 17. That's not inspired. It's just a, a title that the editors have, have put in there, the high priestly prayer, because that's precisely what it is. That's what a priest does. He enters the Father's presence, takes our needs before the throne of grace, and represents us to the good, kind, loving Father. Now here's the deal. As we consider this role of intercessor, Jesus the Son to the Father, oftentimes we can make a, a mistake, and thinking about what this looks like. And sometimes we can think that God the Father is kind of this grumpy old man who needs to be convinced to do things otherwise. Couldn't be furthest from the truth. God the Father doesn't need to be convinced or persuaded of anything. The truth is God the Father is, is eager and wants to bless us. But this is the unique role of Jesus as the high priest, this high priestly role of Christ the Bible tells us that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that man is Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. So in John 17, we see Jesus praying passionately for us. And in so doing, I believe that we're giving sort of a glimpse, a, a preview of what he continues to pray on our behalf. What is Jesus praying for us right now? John 17, 
gives us a glimpse of what that could look like. So just a couple of themes as we walk through this chapter, just for you to consider that we'll, we'll look at together in John 17. This is the heart of Christ, okay? His heart has not changed. This is his heart. And he's opening it up for us to see. Five sort of themes that we'll consider. What is, was Jesus praying for us in John 17? First thing we see, or one of the things we'll see, it's not, maybe it's in an order, I don't know, is that we see that he prays for, he pours out his heart to God for us and asks for our security. He prays for us to be a people who are fortified, who are secure, who are safe. He, he thanks God for giving us to, he takes the Father for, for giving us to the Son. And now in, in, a, in a way he's handing them back to the Father and his request is keep them. Keep them, guard them, protect them. Keep these people as your people. So Jesus' heart is to the Father. He wants us to be secure in Christ. He also asks for our holiness, that we might know and embrace the truth, that we might be people who are shaped and formed and who hold fast to the truth. And it's so unfortunate because you see this, people falling away all over the place who just who let go of the truth. The folks, the truth is we are surrounded in a world that is filled with lies, who wants to offer us an alternative to the truth. And what Jesus is asking for us is that we would be a holy people who are marked by the truth, who are set apart by the truth, that you can look at and say, those people are different. And one of the distinguishing marks would be that we hold up this Bible as the truth, and it shapes our life, the way that we do life together. It, it, it has such a radical impact on our life that as the lies are coming at us from culture around us, that we stand on this book. And we need prayer to do it. We need God's help. Because I'll tell you, my temptation is to just be a pleaser of people, a pleaser of men. Jesus says, let it not be so. Let them be people who are set apart by the very truth of God. Another thing that he prays is for our unity. You see this especially in verses 20 through 23, that a people, a people who are of deep diversity, national, national diversity, um, gender, uh, I mean, across, the, just people across the world, the global church, a diverse people, he prays that they would be united, that they would be one, that the effects of Jesus' sacrifice, that his blood would make one united people. He prays for them to be a unified, single body at the foot of the cross. That Jesus is very clear that his sacrifice was not to divide us into several different groups of people, but it tore down the dividing wall and brought God's people together. That we are a united people. And unfortunately, this can be a hard thing for us to figure out because we live in a world that wants to draw boundary lines and be territorial, and it's this church against that church. Jesus says, no, I died for one church, for one people. We are united people of Christ. And I can think of nothing that's more powerful and that our world needs to see right now than a people who have come together under the shed blood of Jesus Christ, one divided people, rather than reflecting all of the divisions, all of the polarizations that are in, in the culture around us. We are to be a united people. And what unites us is the truth of God and the blood of Christ. And he goes on to say that, hey, when, you, when this happens, that you actually bear witness to the world of the power of the gospel. When you have people from different streams of life who have no business coming together as a community, live together as a people, 
that there's something compelling. For some people, it'll push them away, but for others, it will draw them in. That there's a power that they will know we're Christians by the way that we love one another. So he wants, he wants them to grow, to be multiplied. That the love that we have for one another would be a compelling witness to the world around us about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he prays for their multiplication. And then finally, he also prays for our glory. That we will see his glory and that we might share in his glory. That we might be a people who would be transformed into glory. This is not a small thing. This is a glorious thing. And this is what's waiting for us. In glory with Christ forever. This is how Jesus prays for us. And I don't know about you, but as I just think of some of these themes, I'm like my goodness, I don't know if there's anything that the church of Jesus Christ needs more now than those things. <laughs> to be people who are marked by his truth that are united by the blood of Jesus, that are growing and multiplying and putting the gospel on display for the world to see. This is what we need and Jesus knows it and so he asks the Father to do it. It's a purpose, that's what he's doing here in this prayer. So we see a purpose of the prayer and also we get sort of a picture of what prayer can look like. Now we know that Jesus was a praying man Right? His disciples saw him pray, spending so much time in prayer that they asked him, Lord, can you teach us to pray? Again, we all have room to grow here. Even the disciples are like, teach us how to do this. Teach us how to pray. Oftentimes we look at Matthew 6 um, or in Luke chapter 11 uh, where Jesus gives us the, what is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Right? He instructs the disciples on what prayer looks like. But the truth is Jesus himself could never have prayed that whole prayer, right? Because he didn't sin, so he never even needed to ask for forgiveness of his sins, right? So if we wanna, this probably is a better title for this passage. This is really the Lord's Prayer. He taught us how to pray by giving us a model. But in John 17, he gives us a picture. He gives us an example of what prayer looks like. So, so we go to it to try and learn how to pray. In John 14, 10, the, the works that Jesus did, he, he says that he, he attributes those to the Father at work within him. Here he is the Son of God, the, the perfect man, and yet, even though he's perfect, even though he has power, he still does nothing on his own strength. Instead, he seeks the will of the Father and depends on the power of the Father. We see this all throughout the Bible. As he prays and prays and prays, Luke 6, we looked at this together with a group of folks this week, how Jesus in Luke 6, he, he goes up on the mountaintop, spends the whole night in prayer. And then after he comes down from the mountaintop, he brings disciples to himself and then following him, gathering a community of believers and men around him. Then he goes out and we see miracles happen from there. And that's the right trajectory of ministry. I think oftentimes we flip it the other way around and say, hey, I wanna see the good stuff happen now. So I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna do all sorts of stuff and then, oh my goodness, this is not working. The, the next move is to, okay, well maybe I can persuade some other folks who are more gifted than I am and we can try to do it together, right? Maybe that'll be effective. And then when that doesn't work, then we finally find ourselves on our face and knees crying out to God for help. Jesus does it the other way around. He starts by seeking the face of the Father, by being filled by power from the Father. And then from there, he steps into community, gathers a community around him, and then from there, launches out into mission. And that's the right way to approach ministry. 
Jesus was a man of prayer. John 6, feeding the 5,000, the crowd was impressed, convinced that he was the Messiah. They wanted to rush and make him, crown him right then and there as king. Seeing what was happening, seeing, recognizing this was a great temptation, Jesus himself receded up into a mountain and spent time in prayer with the Father, alone with his God. John 11, before Jesus, several chapters before this, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. There's only three places in the book of John that we get to actually hear what Jesus prayed. John 11, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, and then in John 12, 27 and 28, Jesus prays that the Father might be glorified in his death. And then here in John 17, Jesus was a man of prayer. He lived a life of prayer. And as we listen to him from this chapter in John 17, we learn just not about his heart for us, but we also learn how to pray. And we have to learn how to pray because on this side of eternity, we will all have room to grow in this area. So we must learn how to pray. Praying is essential, not just because we have lots to learn, but because, and here's the key, Jesus, or sorry, God has chosen to do his work in this world through his praying people. And we see that on display in Jesus's life. I'll say that again. God chooses to do his work in this world through his praying people. That's why as we consider the great task of making disciples, one of the key ingredients for the how do we do that is dependence on the spirit, is is prayerful dependence on God's spirit. We need God to pray to be engaged in his work. Now, certainly God could do it anyway. God could snap his fingers and he could make disciples if he chose, but God chose to do it this way, to work through prayer, through his people. And when he does that, it's such a blessing for us because for us, as he works through prayer, we, God shows himself to us and to the world around us through this method. So this serves for us as a wonderful model, a picture of what it could look like to, to, to be a praying person. Just a couple of sort of observations as to how we can grow as, because I don't know about you, but I'm always, you know, oftentimes feel like I've got lots of room to grow. And where prayer is concerned. Some of you may be beginning your journey with Jesus and you hear other people praying and your temptation is to measure your prayers against their prayers and you don't feel comfortable doing it. So how do you pray? Here's a, a couple of things, just observations here from the chapter. Um, first is that you should be guided by the word of God. As you consider what does it sound like to pray, you should be guided by God's word. Um, when praying... Here's a confession. When praying, if I don't have God's word open in front of me while I'm praying, one of two things usually happens. Either my prayers become really repetitive and I keep saying the same thing over and over again, or my mind begins to wander. So we want to have God's word guide us in prayer. So Jesus in John 17, you're not gonna see a lot of new information in terms of doctrine. You will see him say things that he's already said that the God's word has pointed to. And in many ways, he's, he's telling God the Father truth that he already knows from God's word. If you read the Psalms, this is what the psalmist is doing. He's the, the crying out to God by proclaiming things. It's not that he's telling God anything that he doesn't already know, but speaking God's word back to him. Let God's word give you the words to say in prayer. When you pray, have your Bible open. It will be a tremendous help and aid. God loves to hear from his children and he loves when his children come to him with his own words. Secondly, seek the will of God. 
Again, don't come to God to change his mind or to convince him of something. God's will is always perfect. He is, after all, a kind and loving father. We come to him in prayer to discover his will, to discover it. So as you pray, seek God's will in your life, whatever area it is, in your family, in your career, in your education, next steps and relationships. Seek God's will. That's what we want. Secondly, he also wants to know what's in our hearts. He wants to know our wants and our desires. And so it's certainly okay to bring requests, to bring asks, to, to, to come. You see stories in the Bible with men arguing with God in prayer. Pour out your hearts. He wants to hear the desires of your heart. Finally, when we pray, begin by worshiping God. Notice how Jesus begins his prayer. He says, Father. Six times throughout the prayer, Jesus refers to God as his Father. In verse 11, he calls him Holy Father. In verse 25, he calls him Righteous Father. Jesus is approaching the Father with reverence and worship, and we should too. Jesus calls him Father. This is what's so amazing, is that we can come to him in the exact same way. Jesus, the beloved son, if you remember when he was baptized in Matthew 11, out of the, the heavens came a voice that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Well, because of what Jesus has done for us, we get to come to him, the God of the universe, and we get to call him our father as well. Following this prayer, Jesus will cross the Kidron Valley into the garden where he would be betrayed and handed over to his death. In just a matter of hours, he would be hanging on a cross. And it's because of this wonderful sacrifice, this act of love, that we are able to approach God as our father. And we get to be his beloved daughters and beloved sons, ultimately because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Yes, he's, God is the great, almighty, eternal God, but he's also become, in his loving kindness, our Father in Christ. So prayer is one of the ways that we worship God and simply tell him who he is. Not that he needs to be reminded of that, but because he wants to hear it from our lips. One of the other ways that we are reminded, that we are instructed to remember the great cost of what it, what it cost for Jesus for us to be his children, God's children and God our Father is through the, the act of communion, the Lord's Supper. And so we're gonna spend some time right now this morning if you have the elements, um, hopefully you have them, but encourage you to take them out. Um, and if you don't, there's some in the back. You could probably put your hand up and somebody will, will give you one. But we're gonna spend some time right now um, through the Lord's Supper remembering what Christ has done for us so that we might call God our Father. You can go ahead and take out the, the bread. I'm gonna read some scripture and then I'll, I'll direct us.